Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today we are joined by Praveen Prabhakar. He's a professional track and field athlete who holds a master's degree in kinesiology. It's finally good to see the two of you guys, uh, at least through uh, video call. Yeah, I think I've seen him once through video when me and Shrivan were yeah, drinking yeah, I think <laughs> in the basketball I court. I I've seen Roshan somewhere in the badminton court of times, but yeah, I mean, if, I haven't seen I him know. in real in what, about five years, four or five years. Yeah. For the people listening, Praveen studied at NIT Trichy, and you know, the two of us, Mervyn and I, we also studied at NIT Trichy, so we were and juniors. Praveen was Praveen also was the sports secretary. That is just for 2016, right? 2016. Yeah, 15 to 16. 16 yeah. Seems okay. like a long time ago, boys. <laughs> yeah, like even after you, like Ahmed keeps talking. Like even how I got referred to you is like, I was talking to Ahmed about sports options, like from now. Like even I wanted to shift to something sports related because I was like. Pretty tired of doing this my like my course. Mm-hmm. So I was like asking him. He I thought he was doing sports management. Mm-hmm. So I asked him how's the course and all. He was like, then you should talk to Praveen. He's doing kinesiology, sports science and all. So that's how he referred yeah. uh, like me to you. Yeah, I think my and yeah, it, was, it was along the same lines for me. Uh, <laughs> got tired of engineering <laughs> after point. Uh, so I I realized. I was not able. I don't. I realized that I wouldn't be able to do it long term. You know, I wanted to do something that I was a little more passionate about. So then, mm-hmm. a little bit of research, kinesiology happened. Yeah, I mean, wow, it's it's been five years, seriously. Yeah, man. <laughs> like a long time back. How much? Like, how much time did it take for you to take transition? Was it a immediate decision right after college or? Uh, I was looking at some sports science programs uh, even while I was in college, uh, but I think I needed to. It took me a year after college to put things together uh, to see if I stood a chance. Until that point, I wasn't really sure if this is the pathway that I wanted to go. So I reached out to a couple of professors. I talked to them. I did my own research. Um, is there something that I would want to do? And I, one of the main things I was scared about was how would someone just jump onto a master's program without a background in their undergrad, right? I, I did have a pretty uh, good knowledge of sports science and a lot of practices uh, because I think back even back in college, I was very serious about athletics. So a lot of my studying about uh, physiology, sports science was related to athletics, was related to sports science. So... I wouldn't say I didn't have a good knowledge about it, but it's totally different from somebody who studies four years of undergraduate in kinesiology than someone who just uh, tries to find knowledge on the internet for his sport and to become better in a sport. So I, I always had that question. So I wanted to get that out of the equation. I wanted to make sure that if I was going for the master's, that it, I, it would be something that was... Uh, that I could cope with some, uh, the knowledge gap should be copable. I shouldn't go there and just not know anything at all and struggle through two or three years and then realize uh, this is probably not the best thing to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, there are classes I've, I've sat through on the 
first couple of months not knowing anything that they're talking about it's it's happened quite often in the mm-hmm. masters but somewhere along the middle of the course you sort of catch through you know um, i i think the problem is not knowing a lot of the fundamentals sort of the basics so even simple things like terminologies and what's an afferent neuron what's an efferent neuron right there are two two types of uh, neurons okay so it 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 takes some getting used to and especially while reading research papers i think it gets a little harder to understand initially but then over time you sort of develop that and yeah i mean it's it, it just you just have to spend time with it and uh, i think will be good yeah they didn't require like the prerequisites will definitely help right because anatomy that's a whole exactly different aspect yeah. right? i i would say yeah, whole, that is yeah. one of the weaker parts still for me so even now when mm-hmm. i'm of course all the major muscles that's different when 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 somebody comes and tells me about the pectoralis major okay i can i know okay i know the pecs but mm-hmm. when talking more minute stuff you know, like the ligaments and uh more of the smaller muscles i sometimes just have to google and just make sure it is what i think it is Uh, it still does mm-hmm. exist but it is fine man you 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 it's always going to be a learning experience did you actually get into sports yeah um, in i think I, consistent sports maybe would have been um, athletics like track and field um, i've always I've, i've done it what since i was 3 or 4 i've been chumma running like you know the races where you just run eat a pair of biscuits and then run back <laughs> that's that's probably how it started but lemon spoon yeah exactly <laughs> so those sort of things but over time i guess somewhere along my uh 6 started 7 started that's when we started going to these zone competitions the, the district competitions and all of that and i think that was the first exposure outside of school until that point uh, i i was just running inside the school you know the uh, school houses and all of that so then i really got interested in it and i and i started training for it with all the limited resources i have got trying to think okay how can i do this how can i do that can i um, I, i still remember i used to have a sack of books and, uh, and that was my first lifting experience so and <laughs> uh, and so like sort of trying to see how how, how can i uh, get better at this and i think somewhere along it just became a permanent part of it probably at some point it was the most important part of it for me to just better as an athlete and it it just continued through college and i still remember the in college there was the first meet where i thought i was really good and then i went and got my ass kicked and then over time okay mm-hmm. i think better meant just okay I, i have to get better i have to get better so that that, that just kept going so i've i've done sports for a long period of time i I've been lucky to let's say do multiple sports uh, but I think sports specialization is important until a certain age I think playing multiple sports is great you know introduces a lot of mm-hmm. different movement patterns a lot of different skills um, so that that was really good so I I played a lot multiple sports until even in college I would say I played multiple sports just that when it comes to competitions I stuck to track and field So are you still competing are you still into track and field events do you take it professionally I still don't take it professionally so I think I uh, I ran once after coming here 
and but i i had it trained right. for almost 2 3 years and that was sort of like mm-hmm. a wake up call uh, about what happens uh, when you are getting older and you are not training also uh, so <laughs> then i think i i sort of went a little out of shape thanks to quarantine so i couldn't train i, I couldn't do anything outside uh, now I've, i'm slowly just starting to uh, just start running a little bit start lifting a little bit uh, try to get myself into like uh, good shape and and by good shape i don't mean just uh, looking good or anything but just in terms of athletic fitness in terms of being able to perform on a track so i've i've got a goal of doing a meet by this year so that's sort of the goal so but i think my approach has changed a lot that's that's something uh, that you you start to change over time i don't uh, power through anymore i think uh, as as a as a kid as a college kid i think i used to try to push every single day now i'm probably a little wiser about it like i can understand what my body takes what uh, it, it should it take mm-hmm. and trying to be a little smarter about it but let's see the goal is to run a meet by the end of this year amazing man trust this is something even i've questioned myself a lot like do i strain my body every single day and then rest for so, one day or- for, personally for me i've always felt that the idea of getting sore every day be it lifting weights or training is is a is the wrong idea the idea should not be to get sore every day the idea should be to challenge you yes but challenge does not have to be high intensity days you can lift at 70 rm and do 10 reps and still be challenged and i think it it, it comes also down to accumulation of uh, work over the volume. exactly over time over a period of time volume like it's, it, let's if you have let's say a year of high intensity days it's not like by the end of the year the person is going to be an extremely uh, good athlete and he's going to go participate in the olympics right there is a reason that all of these athletes take years to mature it's it's strength and it's it's all of these skill sets accumulated over time so my advice is always to keep high intensity to probably but once in 10 days once in 7 days something i i usually stick to once in a week from monday to sunday yeah i think mervin i think, I think uh, yeah what do you think about you might uh, yeah 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 exactly like let's say you're a sprinter i think you start doing like high inter- intensity sprinting only when the meet approaches like you start like until then it's probably a, a base building so let's say there are three phases while you train i think it's common for all the sports there's something called a general block general fitness block general preparedness then you accumulate volume build strength and then the last block would be betting specific Very to the sports you're like sport you're doing it yeah so for us lifting for me from a lifting perspective let's say my goal is powerlifting so my first block would be to build muscle that won't be anything related to it might be very minutely related to powerlifting but it would be very general like building muscle in general and second would be accumulating volume workload and third would be getting very specific to the lift three lifts itself yeah so Even i think that the same volume, approach to all the the last phase you reduce yeah. the volume and go more for what your uh, event demands of you 
So try to get as intensity to the event as possible, right? So uh, mm. I think for anybody listening, uh, the idea of getting sore every day is, is a very wrong concept. Uh, the concept should always be to accumulate training days. So let's say, let's say you're training about five days a week. Um, what I would do is, let's say you're having Sundays and uh, Saturdays and Sundays off. And this is just a example. And it, it doesn't mean that this is the only right way to do it. There are n number of ways to do it, mm-hmm. which is exactly why some some uh, some athletes' fitness is uh, more successful than the other. It's all about what sticks to you, what works for you, all of that. Uh, so let's say you're training Monday to Friday. What I would essentially do is just keep my Friday to be a high intensity day. So I have got two days of rest, and my Mondays to Thursdays would be more along the lines of the skill sets that I want to develop. It can be anything from uh let's say lifting at 70% or even 50, 60% it's it's always the accumulation of that strength and on that one single day you go high intensity so that you are also able to test your body and sort of keep it in line but again this this will change as you train in professional sports the one intensity initially might not be super intense at the start of the season and as you get closer the number of intensity days might increase but at a very lower volume so it's, it's it's playing around these numbers but the concept of getting sore every day and having high intensity days regularly uh, is not going to help anybody in the long run it is not it it is ultimately going to lead to some kind of wear and tear or some kind of an injury because there's only so much the body can take i, I think everybody has to understand that you once you work out there are going to be consequences to it in your muscle and you need to give it time to heal and only when it heals you get stronger just hitting it regularly without giving it any form of healing uh, is only going to lead to an injury ultimately in the long run this is something called stimulus recovery adaptation curve right so beyond a particular stimulus if you keep going like if you don't give a rest you prop- you only get stronger while you recover actually if you see that curve what you get a stimulus then you recover and the next time your stimulus should be higher than the previous stimulus but then you get stronger only when it recovers when the curve rises is when after you recover so if you go beyond a specific stimulus that your body can't take it's going to hamper your recovery you're not going to grow exactly your performance won't be optimal and yeah i mean I've, sadly i've had to uh, learn a couple of these things the the hard way Like getting injured and mm-hmm. realizing, oh wait, what am I doing wrong here? Why why are these injuries happening regularly? And then understanding that okay, I think I'm I'm just pushing myself way too much. And you can it can also lead to overtraining. It can also lead to burnouts. So it's it's yeah, pushing yourself is one, but madly pushing yourself without anything scientific to back it up is not the right way to go about it. Exactly. yeah people see you know these enhanced athletes they'll think okay we can push as much as them you know people who are, who are on peds and all they'll see on instagram and they'll think yeah i can push like him and people end up getting injured yeah that's what happens so people need to know their limits yeah and what what is possible naturally how slow yeah. yeah and also with all of these super athletes it's uh, it's always uh, uh, what has been accumulated over time everybody needs mm. to understand that what an athlete does on the tv on the field is does not come about in one day it's accumulation of work through years right like right when they were a kid to slowly accumulating the work slowly 
putting in skill sets slowly putting in strength slowly putting in explosive strength all of it and then fitting it all together after years so that's that's how i tend to look at it there's research to support this also like there are people who work out with let's say 100% workload right on day one let's say once a week they do one exercise and the other person splits the same 100% to three days so like this was spread across like eight months or so and they found out that the guy who was doing it three times a week with split workloads gain more strength because one see since it's a skill based movement the more you do it the more times you do it the more your body adapts to that pattern and movement true true so that that is one sheer fact so that if you accumulate if you like split your workload and manage it you know the the frequency like you were talking mm-hmm. about when you lift marginally like you don't it's not that you shouldn't lift heavy but reduce manage that. it properly exactly. and yeah. reduce yeah. that uh, from uh, reduce to doing that regularly over time reduce to doing that to uh, maybe a test one test day something like that like i sometimes i do a five cross five where i have five workouts like it's the bench it's the squat dead uh, cleans and uh, rows so it's just five sets five reps each uh, but mm-hmm. we try to go as maximal as possible and i probably do that like once in two or three weeks so just just mm-hmm. that one day where the goal is to push as much as possible which is five five reps and my body is more used to it as i keep accumulating more uh, workouts together so yeah i i i i think that's the and also people have to consider things like active recovery right uh, doing some form of active recovery in those heavy lifting days uh, so you are not if you are going to hit it continuously with intensity it is it is going to lead to an injury i mean let's face it that's that's the truth it is definitely going to lead to some form of injury i'm not saying that's the only way that injuries can happen but that's probably the easiest way that injuries can happen true uh, so short careers exactly yeah. like a lot of athletes have like lost their careers through injuries it's it's not a funny thing so for anybody who mm-hmm. takes up uh, any form of sport seriously i think they should consider uh, um planning their intensity out uh, the right way so yeah we we saw about workouts so that i i believe i personally believe when you're in the top level of a sport workouts be like 40 30% but genetics is like 60 60% is what i believe if if you want to get to the top of that sport so do you believe your genetics were suitable for the sport what do you think about the genetic requirements for each type of so sport. this is a very sticky topic actually this is a <laughs> because uh, people have very uh, varied opinions on this uh, some like to believe that it is just uh, hard work and uh, but i think on the elite level you cannot cannot deny the fact that genetic does genetics does play a huge factor i it, it at least based on what we know about uh, human genetics It, there is still a lot that we do not know but at least based on what we know yes it does uh, play a big level as to whether you can uh, i think the best example is something like actin actin injury right uh, 
I think it's, it's called the ACTN3. It's a very popular uh, protein. It's a, it's a gene uh, that is mm -hmm. generally uh, seen in type 2 muscles. So your fast twitch muscle fibers. So people who have uh, an en enhanced uh, expression of this particular gene, it's called the sports gene. I think it was marketed way too much. Uh, and uh, it was said that people who had this gene could be elite athletes and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I, there are a lot of uh, different expressions of this and uh, it has been linked to not just, initially it was linked to if, you know, explosive fast twitch muscles and uh, so it was, uh, people thought that, okay, having this particular variant means that you are going to be explosive, you are going to be agile and all of that. But then lately we, there have been studies that also uh, sort of have figured out that it helps not just with uh, your uh, explosiveness, but also recovery. Uh, people who have uh, this particular gene variant uh, are, tend to recover faster, uh, probably have better results out of workouts. So that's always something, that's something that you cannot, uh, uh, you know, put into numbers, right? If I, me and Mervin do the same kind of training, who, why is that one person benefits more? One person is able to gain strength more and the other person is not able to. That like that that will some I I personally for me at least based on what we know now, I feel that comes down to genetics at some level. So yes, it does play a huge part in sport. Uh, you uh, like even phys physiology definitely I would say genetics comes under physiology right? like so physiology definitely at least in terms of looking at it from the sports perspective and physiology definitely does uh, play a huge role uh, in uh, sport uh, like there, there is a reason that you see long distance uh, athletes only from uh, african countries i wouldn't say we see long distance athletes only from there but the let's say the percentage of uh, success level. is super high uh, from specific countries in Africa. And in fact, you can even drill it down to specific tribes in Africa. So they, they have like shorter limbs. Uh, they, they have a, they are lighter on the feet and they've gotten used to running to school for, for like 10 kilometers just to go to school that, you know, it just becomes a part of life. They all live in higher altitudes as well. So that enhances their uh, oxygen taking abilities. So there are a lot of things like that. And I would, I would add gene one among it. Definitely people who are elite athletes do have some form of uh, physical advantage over a normal person. It's, I think it, it is undeniable and I think genetics do play a good part in it. What about age? Is there a certain age that you would introduce a sport this is a this is a very interesting question because we then have to knock on the doors of uh, neuroplasticity right uh, how plastic mm -hmm. is our neural system how how can, is our brain plastic enough to learn new things as we grow in age uh, because we we have uh, we learn languages faster when we are younger uh, it's easier to learn multiple languages when we are younger uh, and the funny thing is uh, there were the research lately has been uh, proving that we have we do have uh, the same kind of neural plasticity even at a uh, older age 
like even as we go through our adulthood we do have the same kind of neuroplasticity but uh, it is harder uh, it requires a lot of focus than it does when you are younger so that 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 again i was always of the opinion that introducing a sport at a younger age is always great because it's easy like it's easier to learn and uh, so far we've always had the opinion that neural plasticity was higher in kids but the re- research lately has started to prove that that is not the case uh, so yes it's it's i, I wouldn't i wouldn't say that if a sport was introduced to somebody in their uh, let's say late 20s or maybe early 20s that they wouldn't be super successful i would not say that uh, but the main problem i come down to physical limitations over age uh, rather than uh, learning skills uh, i still believe on some level that if you can put in the work to learn the skill and if you can put focus into it it is possible to learn skills by skills i mean um, some form of neural adaptation right it you are so, something has to happen in your neural system to learn that like let's say for example roshan you play badminton so with badminton you there are some deft strokes that you play close to the net that you learn over time you you perform repetitions over time and it is basically your neural system learning to do it it's it's basically your nervous system learning to do that small stroke saying hey this is how it goes you expand this muscle this much this uh, you contract this that much it's going to be a slight stroke like you learn that over time so as for learning those skills uh, now because of what research has shown i would say it is possible to learn it at a older age at an older age as well but physically let's say in your late 30s are you still going to be able to perform that at an elite level is probably where the hurdle comes uh, no matter what at a certain level your your kind of st- your body is not going to be able to keep up with the intensity and you've got to be you've got to get smarter and then slowly injuries are going to start creeping up uh, I, i think the best example is someone like roger federer is he, he like until a certain point in time probably three or four years back I don't think uh, he ever missed a grand slam throughout his career because he's he's not been injured at all uh, during the grand slam period he's always made sure that he was there for the grand slam and slowly now you see that he started picking grand slams there are slams that he doesn't want to play and because he's getting older so now he's got to pick and be smarter about it uh, see which are all the grand slams that he can play how how much load that his body can take so yeah it's it, it's it comes down to just getting smarter i wouldn't say that learning skills at an older age uh, is not possible it's definitely possible but the advisable way to do it is to do it at a younger age yeah i think it depends on the type of sport robin is yeah yeah like i said it can depend on the type of the sport robin sounded powerlifting i think after you came to college because i think powerlifting is it's more of genetics itself because there powerlifting if you say skill development there's not much of skill required in powerlifting per se because then that neuroplasticity thing doesn't come into play because different sports have different skill requirements if you see high like very high performance sports fast which involves far, fast movement like you know making swift turns and all let's say nfl and all that is like more skill mm. and it has more skill to it tennis 
but lifting i think it's more genetic because the movements are like once you learn the movements there's no particular skill skill requirement that comes into play so i think it depends on the sport but, but i feel like um, uh, to compete at an elite level uh anthony joshua same bold start late and same no, bold did it in 4 years man no bold, bold started it uh, very young else uh bold okay. was actually the junior world champion in 200 as well so he's been doing right. track and field for a long time his four years transformation was uh, because in athens he'll uh, have a torn hamstring and uh, he'll actually oh. be like the fifth or sixth in his heat he was actually one of the favorites to win the 200 in 2004 olympics as well but he'll have an injury his hamstring injury and then uh, he'll change coaches after that and then slowly uh, they'll change his entire program because he has scoliosis so he had a lot of oh. uh, back issues and uh, hamstring issues so they'll start working around that try to strengthen that and then build his program based on that so i think bolt uh, is a is somebody who started very young <laughs> to be honest i think the perfect example is someone like anthony joshua Uh, mm-hmm. he started out uh, i think in when he was 18 in 2007 uh 2012 he was the london olympics heavyweight uh, gold medalist so i think that's the oh. best example i i've never actually seen somebody start boxing at 18 and get an olympic medal in 5 years so that's that's crazy and right now he holds three of the belts in the heavyweight division and they he's got a big fight coming up with tyson fury so yeah it is possible but again as to how much uh, some like genetics comes into play because i mean as much as boxing is uh, hitting it's also about not get hitting right uh, so you need skills to do that so is it is does he have some genetic advantage that lets him learn skills faster or uh, um, is it I, i i i cannot comment on that i do not know about that but yes there are some late starters who been successful in the elite level as well but they are probably just a hand few because of the sheer fact that a lot of others have started from their childhood and they are probably already established and i don't think a lot of people are encouraged to start a sport when they are 18 or 19 I, I, that's generally not how the sports landscape functions in most countries uh, maybe if we started doing that we may see more athletes like this i don't know about that I think sports with high skill requirements is always better to start when you're young. Like oh. you said, neuroplasticity is like very high, and kids don't have much stress. Also, they say with when your stress increases, your neuroplasticity decreases. Your sleep. There is. There's a lot of issues. That's true. Yeah. Kids don't have anything to care about. Also, no, they. they Probably. Yeah. Like, hey, the plasticity is and, still the same as you grow, but I think, like you said, uh, probably with kids, uh, not a lot of things to worry about, right? You, I mean, you go to a sport. Mm-hmm. you learn it it's going to stick with you a long period of time so it's also about the motor patterns that you learn as a kid the motor skills that you learn as a kid and yeah i think apart from the neuroplasticity aspect also the recovery aspect and elasticity of your body like when you're younger your body yeah, your recovers testo- faster and your body is a lot your more testosterone levels will drop after a point your after an age so testosterone is like and a hormone which is like very important performance wise whether you want to put on muscle you want to like be aggressive in a sport if you want to like performance wise it's a very important hormone so i think after a specific age your test levels start going down 
and i think that would be the peak age for you know high like high intensity sports and all like nfl or let's say any high intensity sport yeah i think recovery definitely as you said roshan i think recovery is something that gets harder as you age right uh, it's not going to be as fast as when you're younger that's definitely the, i think that that's another huge uh, physical hurdle that comes uh, with age for sure what about kinesiology i have no idea what that even means to i've all have wanted to ask you this at the start of the podcast uh, that's put it in one word uh, it's just a study of movement of any any kind right so why is it important to study because everything in our life revolves around movement uh, it is important for us to get from point a to point b to get anything done and point a and point b doesn't have to be some place uh, your house to your office it can be some place as your restroom to your bedroom right uh, without locomotion it's life is not possible so right from what happens when you move how is movement happening uh, what are all the physiological processes behind movement and are there any um, psychosocial like uh, psycho- psychological effects uh, that you feel because of movement because of exercise because of sport so it uh, kinesiology encompasses a lot of different things under movement but to put it if you want to uh, talk about it in a very simple sentence it's just a study of movement so what really got you into kinesiology why is it that you breathe hard when you are pushing yourself because your your blood is basically uh, acidic at that point you are trying to push out the lactic acid by breathing it out as carbon dioxide so what's happening internally physiologically um, so what is the best way to train an athlete uh, like so it's it's a lot of things uh, in kinesiology that is that is going to help you train right right from the energy drink that you train to why your program is uh, scheduled a certain way to uh, what do you do for recovery do you uh, go to a go for a cold bath do you go for a hot bath based on Uh, your current uh, situation do you use from some form of compression uh, in order for you to uh, recover better post your uh, training and what are all the different skill sets that we can train you with uh, is there something that we can uh, not just skill wise but can we also uh, go to the psychology side of it and make you visualize the game so when you are actually playing the game you are not overwhelmed by it you've been through it all of it uh, already so so th- there are a lot of different things and then we can also go into the biomechanics side of it uh, can we actually take you to a lab uh, put some markers on you and ask you to just do some of your strokes and see the torque that is being generated by different muscles see the force that's being generated by different muscles does something look little abnormal in your movement can we make something more efficient can we can we ask you to move something a different way so uh, let's say you're susceptible to a certain injury and let's say it's been happening regularly over time so we can take you to a motion capture lab and look at it and see if there is something that you are doing that probably puts a heavier load on that particular part of your body can we change something about that so th- there are so many things that that you can do and uh, now that right, i think about uh, it it's I think a even and question, it's, obviously i totally uh, sorry to i totally understand because i think until like 
came into the course i uh, it, it was very hard for me to segment so, uh, things when i talk about kinesiology right like there are just so many facets to kinesiology there is the biomechanics part there is the physiology part there is the motor learning part so how do you learn skills so that's another thing in badminton how do you learn skills is there an effective way to learn yeah. skills and we we know for a fact that gradual uh, increasing and if if you want someone to learn an end goal a, a certain skill gradually going there is the best way to do it rather than abruptly getting there so th- that is something that research has proven like with motor learning so it's it's just a lot of multiple paths trying to help you do that and i i totally get your question because even i was under the assumption that when you get into kinesiology when you get into sports there's going to be one golden rule like let's say like einstein's equation e equal to mc squared that one equation can do so many things uh, but that's that's not i don't think that's that's how uh, you should look at kinesiology it, there are too many different concentrations there is the neural part of it there's the physiology part of it there's the genetic part of it there's the psychology part of it uh, it's it's just all of these different things coming together and uh, like doing its magic when you play a sport your concentration on motor uh, neuroscience and cognitive uh, neuroscience is that correct I'm so co- cognitive is cognition means. like how 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 we uh, look at things how we uh, our brain processes things all of that okay. uh, motor neuroscience is more along the lines of how uh, movement happens right Uh, any form of movement it it begins in the brain it begins in the motor cortex of the brain so it it sends a signal uh, to your spinal cord to your muscles that's how movement starts so we try to understand how motor uh, neuroscience we try to understand how you perform that movement and how do you learn new movements okay. like motor learning because if you can understand how a movement happens the next question is okay so how do i learn newer movements is there an efficient way to learn newer movements and why is it that with uh, sometimes it takes more time sometimes it's late it takes less time what's the background happening behind that i learn a new skill and how can i enhance it can i make this better can i study this particular part of it uh, so because learning a new skill uh, it's it's almost like your 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 nervous system just has to program itself for that movement right your your muscles are let's be honest your muscles are not the is not the person conducting the orchestra there your muscles are just like mm-hmm. violinists and the uh, uh, pianists and the musicians there uh, the nervous system is the person who conducts the orchestra the nervous system is the one that says hey uh, you contract so much you contract higher you contract lower and that's that's basically how we perform movements right if i am lifting my hand up i already know that mm-hmm. uh, my unconsciously my my nervous system is programmed to this when i say lift my hand this one muscle is expanding this much one muscle is contracting this much and all of these minute things are happening at a fraction of a second and so it's 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 about looking at that part of movement because if you don't understand the neural side of movement it is impossible to understand movement you have to understand where it originates from how movement happens your muscles are the last set uh, at the last uh, end of the whole chain there they expand or contract based on what the neural signal is from the brain uh, which is why 
a lot of people uh, when they have uh, neural issues you will see that the coordination is a little off uh, uh, you know as you age you will feel that coordination comes down uh, and it's always related uh, more to your nervous system so that, that is the uh, basically what comes under the umbrella of motor neuroscience uh, basically studying the neuroscience part of uh, movement so there's this one more thing i came across there's something called sympathetic and parasympathetic yeah and i've seen yeah. i've seen people tell like when during mma fights these top level people yeah. they are mostly in their parasympathetic state yeah, yeah, yeah. they most of it is already a top down approach it's already yeah. programmed in their mind true, true. and they do the best when they are in their parasympathetic state true is like am i right like i don't know like uh, this is what i've heard so <clears throat> Can you're you talking about the fight and flight and the other system right sympathetic states or yeah sympathetic is the it's a reactive so yeah sympathetic is the reactive system yeah so sympathetic we call it uh, fight or flight right it's uh, basically how your body reacts to any uh, stressful situation keeping it alert higher heart rate and, uh, parasympathetic is more like a relaxed state where uh, your vital functions like digestion Uh, so that's the, that's the nervous system parasympathetic nervous system takes part of uh, takes care of all of those involuntary functions inside your body like your your digestion all of these things happening inside so what mervin is trying to say is that with the parasympathetic nervous system uh, like uh, when people are tuned into a relaxed uh, lower heart rate uh, it uh, they tend to perform better they are more in the flow uh and uh i i would say it sort of does work both ways uh because the thing with uh parasympathetic nervous system is that it's also in a very relaxed state right so this this is a uh, side of research that's that's still uh, developing a lot because there are a lot of different hypotheses on this there are some people who call it the flow state i don't know if you guys have heard of flow mm. states like being in that flow where uh, you can just perform and uh, keep going uh, there are uh, uh, there are there are athletes who regularly perform some form of meditation between like i've seen lebron do it a lot of times he he sits in the bench and he meditates tries to bring his uh, heart rate down and like relax himself uh, but whether that is the best way to go about it i'm not sure i i i uh, i'm not sure and i don't want to give wrong info to anybody who's listening uh, as uh, yeah sorry go on i've heard a neuro, like i've heard a guy talk about this i think there's this guy called huberman yeah and huberman huberman yeah yeah he 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 was talking about this in jorogan's podcast yeah, he's a professor he was saying fighters yeah. yeah he's really good like with this neuroscience part so he was like fighters who are like when they are parasympathetic these actions are like very subconscious it happens very naturally and he says at that stage they are better in fighting so i yeah. thought like i was like interested yeah no i i definitely have seen that i i've seen a lot of fighters say that there are times when they get into a flow and they just they how do they how do i call it it's it's almost uh, not conscious at that point it's it's a very Uh, mm-hmm. interesting thing with fighting a lot of coaches say that uh, when you start thinking inside that's when you start uh, having problems you don't want to be super conscious of what you're doing but rather just go mm-hmm. with the flow uh, 
uh, uh, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Huberman. Uh, I listen to his podcast regularly. So he's a, a neuroscientist at, uh, in the in Stanford School of Medicine, um, and uh, they come up with a lot of interesting research on what happens yeah. uh, in stress scenarios and uh, how sleep, uh, sleep, for sleep, sleep, yeah, sleep helps with uh, uh, recovery. Sleep helps with uh, other other things and all of that. So uh, it's very interesting, but uh, I think uh, my my the the problem I think with me is I I don't know exactly if that's going to help. Uh, what what mm-hmm. state helps? Like, is it just the parasympathetic, like just being relaxed that does this help? Because what if you are actually in the relaxed state and you are not doing so well? Let's say you are working at a higher. Uh, Wait, I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, frame this the right. Yeah, it's a it's very anecdotal. There's no research, proper research to support. Yeah, it. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there are there are uh, there are some researchers who say that you reach that flow state. It's helpful. It's it's really helpful. But I don't know what part it will play in higher intensity sports. Right? Uh, something like let's say example. I think the example would be something like weightlifting or or powerlifting, like. Uh, I think Mervin, you would you would probably be able to shed more I light on it. Powerlifting, it's not going to play much of because powerlifting, when you're, I think it requires a lot of consciousness, mm-hmm. like very conscious exactly. effort to lift. I think it in boxing, like combat sports, is definitely going to help because dodging. Mm-hmm. I think dodging is a very programmed thing in your mm-hmm. mind, right? When someone, you don't have to do it consciously. Mm-hmm. Like when someone comes to hit you, you do it, like. It's yeah, registered yeah, in your mind, yeah. so your your body can do it parasympathetically. So I think it depends on the sport also. Yeah. Also, I think uh, yeah, another interesting thing is how uh, these fighters also then make conscious changes to their game plan as uh, based on what the opponent is doing. So I think it, it, yeah, I think it's it's very interesting uh, if you think of it that way. Uh, at some level, they've got to not be conscious about things, but also make some conscious changes uh, uh, round mm-hmm. after round. so that's 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 very interesting actually but yeah i mean that's a very interesting side of research that's actually coming up now like all of these different flow states and uh, uh, i think uh, so I, even the brain plasticity that research mervin was uh, i think uh, i think was another lab in stanford if i'm not wrong not yeah that's another scientist here i first to i don't know who that is like i've not gone very in deep like like in depth okay with this topic But yeah, I mean, it's it's very yeah, interesting. Europe, yeah, yeah. We'll have to. I'll probably have to check out other research. Yeah, it's it's a very upcoming uh, side of uh, research. Another uh, you, interesting thing uh, that's being uh, looked at right now is how uh, breathing basically can influence uh, states mm. uh, during a game, right? So a lot of uh, sports psychologists uh, are using it. A lot of uh, there are actually breathing coaches in a lot of games now so uh, that's that's like that a new work. upcoming field uh, especially in fighting there are uh, it's been used supposedly for a longer time like for you to based on your breathing so um, so when you breathe your diaphragm under your lungs it's basically just a muscle right so it's going to send some form of signal to your brain and based on that it's probably going to secrete hormones or adrenaline or uh, based on based on that your response to the whole situation changes so those are all small things that a lot of elite athletes use a lot that's probably why lebron just 
meditates in the middle of uh, when he goes to the corner so that he can just calm himself down and hey there are a lot of that's that's another uh, very interesting side of uh, sports science that's being looked at i think now now is sort of the golden time for sports science the like everybody is mm-hmm. sort of trying to look at uh, how, how what are all the different ways that i can be better than the other athlete what are all these minute things that will give me more composure during a game or make me better during the game uh, and i think we uh, the mental aspect of it uh, is is very important right now than ever and it's a golden period for sports science for sure kinesiology also includes uh, psychology the psychology aspect of yeah sports psychology yes uh, it does involve uh, sports psychology and not just of the athlete it also sports psychology looks at the uh, role of coaches uh, what what coaching methodology is better and also looks at teams um, i know one of my f- uh, friends he did his research on uh, uh, soccer teams being uh, formed with uh, yeah with the refugee kids yeah with refugee kids yeah that's the exact word i'm looking for so i don't know why it took so long for that word to come up on me <laughs> mm-hmm. so researchers on uh, soccer teams uh, <laughs> with refugee kids so how that helps them bond and how uh, it serves as a very educational experience for them because uh, you know being a refugee in another country means so many different issues right you don't like, mm. your families you, you're not from that country you basically just being given a, a space to live in that country and you are trying to get a citizenship there um, i don't know if your family is there or not so it's a high stress environment especially for kids for kids to be dealing with that is is really sad no kid should have to deal with all of the issues of war or not having their family next to them so how does sport help that does a team sport actually help that if you put a bunch of kids uh, together uh, what are all the different uh, aspects of it so that's that's very interesting there are also uh, uh, basic studies on health and wellness does movement make us feel good like so we know that you know once your uh, body has your growth hormone you tend you tend to feel better and when you achieve like say let's some some goal uh, on your fitness list or something like that you secrete dopamine so uh, so what are all the general health uh, advantages that you've got just by the sheer fact of moving every day it doesn't have to be going to the gym and lifting heavy weights just moving just just a simple walk for 20 minutes um, just getting out of your uh, room something like that so yeah there are uh, different aspects of uh, sports psychology within kinesiology also what about yeah, yeah. um animal uh, primal movement patterns that's that's what you're yeah, talking about yeah. okay yeah. yeah so yeah yeah i think it's it's picking up story i i wasn't i think it became really uh, famous because of conor uh, conor mcgregor the fighter so he worked with uh, ido portal uh, ido portal is the uh, one who came up with the movement i forgot the exact name of it uh, except the movement uh, theory what is it called movement culture yeah that's the name of it so ido portal came up with that and it's uh, about free movement exposing your body to 
different movement patterns and uh, yeah i mean that's uh, funny enough that's actually been something that i've been looking to do uh, quite a while now uh, i i try to uh, every once in a while every week i have a certain number of days where i try to incorporate some new movement into my uh, that becomes the sole aim to just get some free movement and incorporate uh, different movement patterns into my uh, daily workout so uh as to whether that makes you a better athlete long time and how it works in elite sports i'm not so sure right uh, i i would still say that uh because it, this this almost comes down to specializing in a sport versus being broader and uh, putting yourself through a lot of movement patterns to be successful in in that sport right i i, I cannot really comment on that because i don't know which is better uh is it if you are if you are practicing that sport specific movement for a, for n number of years is that better or are you going to be a better learner because you've uh, done multiple movements uh, and you always keep learning newer movements uh, but yes to look on a to look at it from a uh, broader perspective though i would say wouldn't you guys agree that as you keep introducing your body to new movement methodologies you have a higher plasticity towards movements i i, I would say that maybe compared to a normal person maybe it's easier to learn uh, movement right uh, yep i would say definitely that it depends on your preference yeah. in the end of the day if your goal is Actually, to attain different I, sk- movement skills i think this would be better but if you want to get specifically better in a sport where your let's say your sport is unidirectional where you have to run 100 meter it's just movement in one direction it's repetitive movement in one direction i don't think you're going to benefit in any way by maybe it's a general movement based tool but i don't think it would aid in sports performance specifically is what i feel what do you feel roshan you were saying something i actually did the amr flow certification and i passed mm-hmm. the well so the the founder of animal flow is mike fitch and idopotel is another guy who's one of the pioneers okay. but he again oh i don't know about basically that. mike fitch trademarked the animal flow name so idopotel mm-hmm. cannot uh, yeah so idopotel is got his own thing going on that's that movement movement culture and stuff and for me mm-hmm. so uh, i felt like i learned a lot with regard to body movements because as humans we have evolved into bipedal species right and back in the day we were quadruped we used to use all four limbs and sort of like being introduced to animal flow kind of opened my mind about how the nervous system actually works when you try to move your limbs like for example if you put your if you put four limbs on on the ground right and you can try this maybe after mm-hmm. the podcast both of you basically you get into a baby crawl baby crawl position okay and you put all four limbs your knees are also on the ground your toes are touching like a bear crawl now try to knee bear, lift bear. your knee just 1 inch off the floor but <laughs> it's just 1 inch off the floor and now the point of contacts are your palms and your <laughs> toes right now if you try to lift just yeah, yeah. one arm off 
right you might think it's easy but it's actually really hard because your brain no, no. has been trained to you know activate this so no. you're going to have to force this hand down mm. force the right leg down and a little bit of the left toe yeah. but your brain is not used to that so it's going to be you're going to fall a bit and then you're mm. going to balance yourself and then what you have to try to do mm. is a contralateral lift which is lifting your right arm and lifting your left mm. limb so now you're balancing your body mm. with just your left hand and your right toe and like being introduced to this this is just one of the multiple movements that these guys follow but being introduced to this really opened my mind mm-hmm. and i felt like it has helped me with badminton as well it's made me more mm-hmm. mobile that is one and it's also helped me with my breathing like mm-hmm. when i play a shot do i breathe out and when i breathe out how much of air do i release and mm-hmm. all of that so mm-hmm. but the thing is i don't know exactly the yeah, yeah i get what you're trying to say i, I think yeah, uh, that's and, that's where i think my yeah. question lies to right uh, like i i actually do some form of uh, uh, like the movements that you're talking about like i try to incorporate those into my uh, workout as well so my my lifting days have come down drastically like it's about 3 or 4 days 3 days per week maybe uh, i have one day where i try to test my coordination and balance like i would call what you said more like not just mobility but also you know coordinating and balance and using or recruiting your core to balance the whole movement all of it right and uh, i sort of do the same thing with weights as well i do a lot of imbalance workouts like uh, like let's say with a dumbbell bench i instead of doing just both the hands together i just do one hand at a time so that way your your oblique and your core has to stabilize yeah. that whole movement for you to not twist to the side uh, so uh, like i i i think this is where my question comes i i i i will totally agree with the fact that it does benefit it for any normal person doing it uh, or even for uh, us who done uh, a certain sport for a certain period of time uh introducing getting introduced to a new uh, pattern with the probably does help you with the balance help you with the mobility uh definitely it does and but my my question is does it help with the elite level when you are already a really good mover when you are already uh like at your prime because uh, you are i don't know how much improvement it can offer at that point uh on i'm i'm talking about an elite elite uh, athlete like i'm i'm talking about let's say lindan or lee changwe so is 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 it going to help uh, lindan become a better badminton player and i think that is where i don't know if it is going to but uh, i think connor is a yeah i think but connor is a good example of uh, that like mm-hmm. he was an elite striker before and i have no clue about the it. movement yeah. uh, just made him a different striker after that point like i would attribute a lot of his success to that movement uh, being able to counter move according to his opponents and being very fluid in his movements and being able to pop the power whenever he wants to so yes it it, it definitely does help certain aspects it definitely helps your coordination definitely helps your mobility uh but i think the question is uh, the, is it because uh we don't have the mobility that elite athletes have right like we've all played a sport at at some elite level but uh let's i'm i'm talking about the olympic gold uh, kind of elite level 
like the best of the best of the best like multiple uh, olympic uh, golds multiple world championships uh, will is is the is, is it going to improve their mobility and improve their game in some way i think that, that that's that will be a pretty interesting thing to actually study i think it help it would help in mma yeah for sure yeah because if you see yeah. you see in, i've in seen john jones personal... like uh, his stance while mm-hmm. you know starting he starts on four legs mm-hmm. i think his his he has a very unorthodox yeah, yeah. i think he does a lot of animal flow like in mma the more you are you know open to movement in multiple directions mm-hmm. i think that makes it much better mm-hmm. you know 3d movement you know ducking this way that way mm-hmm. but again it depends on the sport mm-hmm. like there are other ways to get mobility that will make you better in a specific sport or in mma where the requirement is like 360 degrees i think animal flow will definitely help mm, true i don't do you think that i don't the carryover would be like very less like in maybe in like an off season looking at it from because i think powerlifters don't benefit much i think they need a certain level of range of motion but i think while let's say while squatting the more deeper you go the extra depth you get while squatting is going to be detrimental for you because when your aim is to squat as much as possible you would try to stick to the minimum requirement of rules as possible and then lift it so what's let's say my requirement of depth would be let's say my 90 uh yeah n- less than 90 so probably like around 110 let's say 110 110 why would i want to go below that that's going to that's going to like you know hamper my performance i'll have to move more but to also moving against the uh, weight looking at it this way uh you do you don't you think that nervous system wise you are being challenged when you try all of these uh, movement patterns i would really like to know yeah, does that improve strength in some way does it give you some added advantage uh, as you keep doing it as you keep introducing your body to longer uh, sorry to different movement patterns i think that that will be pretty interesting to study though i don't know how much benefits you will have or whether you'll have any benefits at all uh, in a in a very power oriented sport but yeah i think it'll be it's pretty interesting i think during the off season when when after a competition when you get back to that general preparedness phase like i said the general base where you start building fitness i think at that time it has a role mm-hmm. because at that time you need to be flexible you can't be rigid all time of the mm-hmm. year right it's not going it's not healthy so i think that initial one month i think this can be incorporated as a way to loosen you up loosen you up to get movement in all directions because if you're compressed for a long time it's not going to be good true true that's true it's very interesting actually but yeah i think i'm all for uh, people getting introduced to like animal flow movement culture yeah, for me to be very honest anything that that keeps you moving go for it as, as long as it's not too intense on your body and causes injury go for it anything that keeps anybody moving because i i think that the, the the best way to put it is this uh, move, moving regularly will give people a better lifestyle it makes people healthier it, it improves their mood studies have shown that time and again that any form of movement any form of exercise not just not even for like 2 3 hours a day just 20 minutes a day it's it's shown to boost people's uh, mood levels it's it's shown that uh, it reduces anxiety it, it reduces the quality of living uh, so yes i mean there are people who uh, there are some studies that have shown that uh, 
there is an increase in the white matter of the brain so there are a lot of different uh, studies and we can accept the fact that some normal level of exercise every day is great for everybody uh, no matter what the skill level you don't have to be an international uh, lifter to go to the gym and lift if you don't like lifting you can always go for a walk 20 minutes walk speed walk or you want to jog go for a jog you want to try movement uh, animal flow go for it you want to try yoga something something that that basically gives you some form of activity yeah actually humans are not meant to sit on chairs exactly. like we are not we are not they were yeah. always meant to be either sleeping or either move exactly. i mean movement is part of our culture yeah. right there are there yeah. are certain theories that one of like i wouldn't say theories i would even go on to say that most of this is established fact the way that we were hunters uh, as uh, when we were uh, evolving we were basically hunters and the way that we actually got our prey is that animals cannot ventilate right they don't sweat so they they run at uh, at a certain speed and after point they they just have to stop and pant and humans because we sweat uh, we we are able to ventilate better uh, we are more like the marathon runners who catch up to them and then kill the prey and, and that's how we were mm-hmm. as hunters so movement is this is part and parcel of who we are um, Interesting. you really cannot take that away and as you do as you get more movement it's always going to make life better of course you have to draw the line somewhere i'm not asking people to just go to the gym and like or uh, do something for 5 6 hours a day yes there is there is a level like we talked before about how much intense work you can give your body but some form of basic movement is always beneficial even while working through an injury people say it's bad actually if you take complete rest yeah active recovery have, is better than uh, just lying on the bed yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i have experienced this personally like i had a back injury when i was in college so i rested it for like one one or two weeks and it it got worse actually mm. and so i what i did was i started so when i started doing deadlifts with 40 kg mm. and i i used to do like 20 reps 30 reps and it got better actually So I, I would I wouldn't call doing stick. deadlifts uh, active recovery, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Oh, 40 kgs, man. Yeah, probably less like for you, but but for most people, not so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I I guess active recovery depends on uh, on person to person. Yeah, depends on severity but, yeah, of injury. I think that that again comes to it. I think uh, Roshan, we can piggyback on one of the questions you asked, right? Like, how does kinesiology help me, right? Like, uh, so what mm-hmm. exactly happens there is. Uh, your your blood you're basically just increasing your blood flow to that particular injured part so for the for the muscle to heal you've got uh, blood to carry the essential nutrients the healing required has to happen only through blood flow so we know for a fact that okay active recovery does that you don't want to strain the muscle you don't want to injure it anymore but you want to keep the blood flowing anything to keep the blood flowing there so again we know these things because we've done the studies for all so i think a lot of these established aspects of sports have come through studies that have been done previously so yeah and i think until a certain point of time we even with elite athletes we uh, when they get injured complete rest right not active recovery was the uh, recommended solution but now we've moved towards active recovery and slowly as we learn more slowly we are adding more and more to uh, sports uh, how can we get better and all of that 
like i had one more doubt like see in india you get two kinds of advices once you're injured let's say you go to a clinical physician he says complete rest don't lift for your lifetime and if you go to a sports science like sports science based person he's going to say keep lifting but do these changes so what is it that they study differently because one is clearly not going to like how is it changing uh, so this is the thing right i think one of the major problems is how up to date the person is with current research literature right like that that's a major problem not just in india but anywhere in the world like you've got people who make the effort to regularly study about their field and know what's coming up new that, that's the nature of research right uh, it, something new just keeps popping up something better keeps popping up so there are those who uh, evolve with it and those who do not and also i think the difference also comes maybe our doctors don't have doctors don't have a lot of time to review literature and see what's happening okay what is the new thing there uh, maybe someone like a sports scientist or a, a sports physiotherapist is more uh, uh, has more experience working with the teams and maybe looking at what is the current best method that's being used in sports that i can use for this person so it, it comes down to a lot of different things and it's i would say it's almost not possible to uh, have the same same knowledge and same uh, idea throughout different individuals it's going to change even with coaches there are coaches who Uh, who are really up to date because i i've trained with different types of coaches right coaches who are very old school in the fact that uh, right. every athlete in the group will have the same kind of workout right and then there are coaches who do different workouts for a sprinter like 100 200 different workouts for someone like 400 800 so that is more new school uh, like uh, developing the skill set that is required uh, for the athlete to perform his particular event and uh, yeah so more specific uh, training and there are some uh, and like so some coaches do general training during off season and as the as the season progresses uh, they move towards very specific skill sets for that event so yeah there are there are different methodologies as to how people do it and uh, yeah it depends it just depends on that person there what they prefer what they've learned how how up to date they are on what is being practiced uh but yes uh, i would say active recovery is uh, more the sort of solution that uh, like a sports uh, physio or somebody uh, someone on the sports side would uh, recommend because that is more practiced in uh, uh, in the sports uh, field rather than in day to day life in a day to day life i think if you go to a doctor the solution is going to be rest because i think the other side flip side of the coin is going to work every day and straining so they don't want you to do that so instead they would probably give you uh, just rest which is better than straining or working out and yeah maybe over time maybe you don't know maybe in the next 10 years active recovery might become just a fixed part of recovery and that might probably be the recommended uh, solution to most minor injuries i'm not talking about major fractures or uh, Uh, you know bone healing all of that i'm talking more about uh, smaller uh, muscle injuries like uh, uh, tendon uh, small tendon uh, sprains or small 
uh, yeah some ruptures something that 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 is not super serious so yeah it, it i guess it just comes down to the difference in what people know and what they believe in but it's always better to go to a like sports based medicine because absolutely a doctor clinically they his main goal would be to to get you out of pain so he just give you two painkillers and that and his job is done mm-hmm. there's no real assessment just they do to 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 like depends on the goal also. yeah even there there is a flip side to it right like uh, uh, so these painkillers they are called nsaids i think non steroidal anti inflammatory mm-hmm. drugs so uh, research, research has shown that they basically reduce inflammation uh, you've got and so inflammation the inflammation happens because there is increased blood flow there so the the problem is when you reduce the inflammation the pain pain comes down but on the other side recovery time healing time also goes higher so then you you you've sort of got to balance that right like do i want to be with the pain but heal faster or do i want to bring the uh, pain down but increase the healing so with most nsaids the healing time increases so yeah there are a lot of these different things like so as a if you are a, if you are an athlete if you are an elite athlete uh, you're probably going to try to heal faster right for a normal person you don't want to put them through the pain because they're not able to sleep they're not able to do anything uh, because of the pain so you probably want to reduce the pain and tell them listen you can probably bed rest for a while and work from home something like that so yeah, it, it 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 comes down to how you see it and what that uh, particular person requires mm-hmm. yeah. yeah as we have to ask it's pretty nice one <laughs> Uh, I just realized yeah, that so you asked me twice, but yes, we never go the plan time. <laughs> Even the last time, it was about two and a half hours. I could still keep talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can. I, we can do this all day. <laughs> so, like, currently you're doing your internship. What What is it that you're doing an internship in? Oh, yeah. So, Where... I'm done with my internship, actually. So, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. now working on my so, thesis. I will have to defend it. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about like what was it uh, so specific to uh, your intern or my okay so my internship is uh, with a biomedical company called avid heart so um is it's a biomedical device that measures your uh, uh, ekg your uh, uh, heart rate your temperature sensor your um what else your pulse oximetry all of that and by ekg i mean ecg Uh, ekg is the old school way of mm-hmm. calling it because it was i think found in germany and uh, they spelled cardiogram with a k so but then once it got popularized in the english speaking world it became ecg so electrocardiogram so yeah i'm i essentially i'm talking about the same thing when i say ekg uh, so it basically measures all of these and uh, based on your ekg it's it's got some uh, built in uh, machine learning algorithms inside which uh, can detect a few conditions it can detect some tachycardia conditions because uh, so cardiovascular diseases in the us is extremely high it's probably one of the leading causes of death in the us so earlier detection definitely helps with uh, people seeking help because a lot of the times people just think it's a normal chest pain but turns out that it's something more serious than that so that that's that's one of the devices that the company manufactures 
another device that we were working on uh, is actually from a NSF grant. Uh, NSF is the National Science Foundation here. So basically, we are trying to manufacture a patch that you can stick to your body, which essentially does the same things. Uh, like what I mentioned before, takes the heart rate, your uh, EKG, your pulse oximetry, your temperature and all of that. And when you have like a condition where you are risky of getting into some cardiovascular condition, adverse cardiovascular condition, it's going to vibrate. So it is more designed towards uh, firefighters here. Because uh, so firefighters have to work under extreme stress, like uh, they're there at their maximal heart rates a lot of the times when they're actually working in the fire, working at very elevated work rates for a longer period of time. Because they, 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 can't, they can't afford to be slow, they've got to be fast, they've got to rescue things, the people, they've got to try to mm-hmm. uh, somehow get the fire down and all of that. So they're working at an elevated heart rate a lot of the times. And one of their re- major, major reasons for death uh, with firefighters is uh, some form of adverse cardiovascular condition, uh, either AFib or something like that. So we were trying to... Uh, make them where during their duty, see if uh, we can uh, detect those conditions beforehand so they can seek medical help or when it reaches a certain stage, ask them to uh, uh, you know, uh, take a brief period of rest or uh, whatever. So uh, it's, it's more of a biomedical device that tries to, tries to tell people about their cardiovascular condition beforehand and give them some, some form of intimation. So yeah, that's that's basically uh, what the company does, and I was interning with their uh, R&D team. It, it was really good. Yes, mm-hmm. I learned quite a uh, few things. How, how uh, a lot of the research that you do, a lot of uh, lot of uh, research that you do in a lab can translate into a consumer product because it doesn't essentially have to be the same. Uh, doing research and uh, putting out a product are essentially two different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm planning on graduating uh, this uh, June or July. I, ha- I just have to defend my th- I have to have you graduated uh, defend my thesis. So that's that's the only part that's left. So, what's your thesis on? Uh, so it's mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So uh, let me let me try to uh, explain it as simple as possible. No, the the problem is I think. Uh, the first time I explained it, I almost uh, uh, took about 20 minutes trying to explain it. And then over time, as I've explained it to multiple people, I've gotten better at it. Because I, I was telling my friend, the last thing that anybody, any researcher wants to have is to not be able to explain their research in a very efficient manner. Like it, it, it makes you... You want to turn a timer on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's... No, it's, 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 it's actually, it's, uh, it's pretty simple, but uh, I think this has got uh, two or three different aspects to it. So, I mean, the first aspect is uh, about motor learning, right? About, uh, so like I told you that there is, uh, let's, let's start here. Let's say, uh, let's talk about perturbations first. When, when you give something different to your body, like an imbalance, like we talked about motion, like with your animal flow or, uh, your body is not used to that, right? Uh, when you lift your hands up. Uh, so what happens there is uh, your, your nervous system basically tries to learn how to balance yourself there. And that's why as you do it over time, we slowly learn how to do it better. So any form of perturbation will basically challenge the motor system. Uh, 
uh, it will challenge your nervous system to do that certain thing the right way. Uh, so what we do in the lab is we have an equipment called a kin arm. So it's basically like a robotic arm. And there is a screen that you look at. There's a TV, basically. And you basically have a target that you have to move to from point A to point B. And the ta target is going to be in different angles. And it will usually be set up in the form of a game. Uh, so, you know, you get points for it. Something to just make it fun. Uh, and what we start doing is we start giving perturbations in that movement. We, we start producing force fields in that movement as you reach to that target. Like, again, we, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, 5 newtons or 10 newtons, 20 newtons. So once we start giving forces, the way that people move changes, your trajectory changes. Your, body, your nervous system is going to try to adapt to that in a particular way. And mm. uh, so let this be one aspect of it. Uh, let it stay right there. We'll, we'll talk about it later. So the second aspect of it is motor learning. So in motor learning, you've, uh, uh, we talked about this earlier as well. There are uh, two uh, types that you can make a person learn it, right? Gradual, step by step, getting there, or like abrupt. And we know for a fact that gradual uh, uh, is the best way to learn uh, uh, to do it. Like as you, like for example, instead of doing it from zero newtons to twenty newtons, you are going to increase from zero to five to ten to fifteen to twenty. So as you keep giving that perturbation, people are going to adapt better to it. The adaptation is better there. Okay. Let's um, just give me one minute. The direction is random, yeah. One second, just one second. Hey boys, boys, what's up? What's up? What's up? No problem. No problem. I have got some friends uh, in the house, about six or seven of them. So. <laughs> All Tamil guys. Uh, most of them. There are uh, about three or four Tamil guys and uh, two or three uh, guys from Gujarat. Uh, one. One person from Mumbai, yeah, it's, it's a mixed field. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so yeah, the the force field, uh, like like you asked, will depend will depend based on your movement. So if you move this way, okay. force field is going to be opposite. So uh, if you move to the right, uh, force is going to opposite play on the opposite side. So we know that uh, your adaptation is better with a abrupt. Uh, it's better with gradual rather than abrupt. So this mm -hmm. is the second aspect. Keep it. So the third aspect is something called uh, co-contraction. Co-contraction basically is the uh, contraction of uh, agonist and antagonist muscles. So your uh, bicep and tricep, your opposing muscles, your anterior deltoid and your posterior mm -hmm. deltoid, your pecs and your uh, traps. So you know, uh, yeah. so of muscles. For example, if I bend my arm, I have to contract one, expand one. Uh, straighten my arms, expand my tricep. Uh, Sorry, contract my tricep, expand my bicep. So opposing muscles, that's how we, we uh, tend to move. Um, so co-contraction is basically the times when we contract both of these muscles together. And uh, co-contraction is oh. generally related to uh, higher stability. So what happens is when people get that force field, they start co-contracting in order to get more stability in their movement, to be more precise in their end goal to reach that target. Um, uh, what we so what we do along with the uh, uh, kinam like the robot is that we also attach EMG sensors to certain muscles uh, while they do that particular experiment. So what we are trying to understand is so we know that 
gradual and abrupt you know that gradual is better for people to learn so what we are trying to understand is does gradual have a higher degree of co contraction so then that will be the reason that people learn skills gradually better than just abrupt where the co contraction is probably lesser so as you learned what happens is we call something called an internal model so where you are uh, to put it simply it's more like your uh, brain your your uh, neural system developing a model an algorithm for that particular moment right how do i deal with this uh, force field acting against me or how how how, how can i stabilize with this so initially what we see is uh, increased co contraction uh, whether it's abrupt or gradual whatever it is but as your nervous system starts adapting to that particular perturbation you see that co contraction decreases so that's when you start learning mm-hmm. so we call that the motor learning phase we call there's exposure like we call it early exposure exposure and then post exposure so you're slowly learning it and at post exposure we hypothesis that that uh, co contraction comes down so uh, we we're just looking at uh, is this related is uh, is co contraction one of the main principles that we learn uh, skills and slowly uh, over time as the co contraction decreases we know that we form a better uh, model of the whole movement and we are able to control it better without the co contraction so what we're trying to do is see how is this related to the gradual and abrupt nice that's nice so this emg thing emg yeah. study should actually be very actually... controlled right the because error the chances of error with emg can be high because yeah. you never know when a person see if you squeeze your <laughs> muscle it's going to show an emg activation yeah. and you don't know when it's working and a person is actually squeezing true, it right? true, true. so so yeah so the 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 way to do that is we normalize it with the, uh, so EMGs always have to be normalized so uh, when i take a emg and I, i take roshan cmg i can just compare the numbers directly so we do something called uh, mvic it's called ma- maximal voluntary isometric contraction uh, once your experiment mm-hmm. is over or before you start with the experiment once i hook on the emg we'll ask you to do some maximal effort isometric work like let's say for a shoulder let's say sorry for the bicep let's say you've got like Uh, something super heavy and you're just trying to push it you know you can't move it but it's isometric mm-hmm. maximal work so we take those readings and using that we normalize your normal emg values so that that's that's how we we can compare yours and roshan's because we can't uh, just compare the emg normally because your neural output and roshan's neural outputs are going to be different right uh, so mm-hmm. that's that's sort of how we can compare uh, i i guess that that sort of answers your question mm-hmm. right so yeah i mean well, yeah go ahead roshan with with regard to co so with regard to co contraction right um like is it actually possible for opposing muscles to do the same mm-hmm. thing like opposing muscles to contract opposite uh, uh, can you tell oh, me okay are you talking about a workout or how it happens in real life yeah, take, take badminton for example uh, i mean you go for a backhand using the racket there is a certain point where you just try to stabilize it right just try to go through that particular movement 
when you try to stabilize it in that particular movement you are basically contracting your bicep and your tricep to just stabilize it that would be isometric right yeah it's it's, it's basically uh, so this is the thing right like with lot of isometric work there is contraction happening on both the sides like when you when you do a wall squat for example uh, it's it's not that you are just sitting there ideally you are contracting both your quad and your ham at the same time so that is co contraction so uh, it, it is for you to so what happens is why we use that with movements okay. is that we get more stability with that let's say you try to try to move your arms uh, like steady in a stiff manner when i say the word stiff you only then you realize that you are actually contracting both your bicep and your tricep when you do that just try to reach out in a slow manner like really slow as slow as you can control it and you know that you are actually co contracting at that point so that, that's what happens when the perturbation happens when you put a certain force field on people uh, the first time they're just like oh there's something that's not the same uh, there's something that's a little weird Is it possible for a co-expansion? Uh, no, co-expansion. No, it it is. Is there a term uh, like that? It's, uh, you know, both the muscles expanding is. Uh, no, it, it. How do I say? It? I don't think it's. It's, it's not uh, possible technically, because one expands, one contracts. Both, even with co-contraction, it's not that it contracts fully, right? It's just that both of them are fired to contract. A little bit to maintain that stability. It's like on a bare plank when yeah, you yeah. your when you're on a plank also your it'll be co-contract your hands the muscles in your hand will be co-contract. Yeah, co- that's that's actually very true. Yeah. As you do the bare um, curls. Yeah. So the thesis. So the thesis basically um, you're trying to identify whether. No, uh, we know on different sides. We know that co-contraction is elevated when you are learning the when you are initially exposed initially. to the perturbation, and later on it goes down. We know for a fact that it helps uh, motor learning, and on the other side, we know that gradual is better to learn than abrupt. What we are trying to do is trying to link these two up and see. if the re- the reason that gradual is better is it because of higher co contraction or is there some other principle with which we actually learn uh, how to do a certain task when there is a perturbation because then we we'll know so you have to the main it. principle that the brain sticks to or you've got other underlying wow, principles really? that the brain uses to learn a particular movement or when there is a perturbation how does it go about it So it will be like correlation and all. You'll have to do correlation stuff, right? Yeah, stats, stats, correlation, regression, yeah, stats. Uh, research, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so was it quite correlative? No, we've not gotten to that. How much we've was the correlation? That that super interesting, though. We we okay. still not. Uh, I mean, the the analysis is is part partly done. Uh, still have to do the stats mm-hmm. part of it. So which is why uh, I keep referring to our hypothesis because it's it's not proven yet. Uh, no, it's by by a robotic arm. I just mean a normal robot. arm. So a normal arm with sensors in it that basically measures your movement. So you, it's it's. Uh, can you can you share screen? Wait, I can show you the screen. That one. 
Share share screen on Google Meet. Present oh, now. Okay. It's uh, present now. Bottom. Now, can you see this? And then you can just tell, select whatever tab. Yeah. Yeah, we've got uh, this. Wow. You have a website for your thesis? Uh, no, this is uh, the company that uh, does the product. So oh, it's, okay. it's actually okay. a very okay. uh, famous apparatus used in uh, motor learning uh, paradigms. So yeah, so basically you so you keep your head here. So there is a TV here, as you can see, and the TV basically reflects this onto a screen. So like you said, you can see the balls, right? So let's say one is a target, one you have to move down to. You can set it however you want to. Like you can make it a game where uh, they escape from uh, like a certain number of balls coming in. It basically depends on how you program it. And you can see the um, <laughs> robotic arm underneath. So it's just something they hold on to and try to reach. As you move that, you will see changes in the screen and so on, but you can't see a robotic arm. So once you put your head down here, like he is doing right now, you'll only be able to see the screen. So you won't be able to see the arm. Uh, below. So let me, yeah. So that's how it works. So this takes a lot of readings. Like it takes your X and Y coordinates, your acceleration, velocity, torque on the joints. Um, like it, it takes close to about, I think 69 fields of readings, so just the skin arm. And then we also add uh, EMG while the person is doing this. So, so then we can correlate, correlate uh, co-contraction with uh, uh, the kinematics data. So can this be, can we like derive that? So you say the co-contraction becomes less as you become more uh, well-versed with the moment, mm -hmm. no? So could that be attributed that it's going to the parasympathetic state at that time? So that's the co-contraction. Co not, not sure about that. Not, no, I'm no. not at all sure about it. So uh, I, I have no idea at what state it is. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't Could it be say, possible because you're... I wouldn't say that we go to a parasympathetic to state uh, in order to learn, right? Uh, uh, it's, it's more of... Uh, Once you finish learning. Yeah, but... Once you're adapted yeah, but to it. that's the thing, right? It's, it's not like we learn a particular thing and only perform it in the parasympathetic state, like when we are really relaxed or uh, eating or uh, digesting or sleeping. Uh, it's more about uh, how, what is the pathway that the brain uses the best in order to learn a task? Or what does it predominantly use? I'm pretty sure that there are uh, different ways that it learns things, but uh, predominantly in terms of a motor task, what does it use? And uh, I think the reduced uh, uh, co-contraction, we generally relate it to the, the brain forming a model of what is required. Uh, like I think the mm -hmm. best example is, uh, take something like neural networks. Uh, do you guys use neural net? Uh, uh, like uh, you would have at least come across it in like your subjects, like the basics of it. It's basically just distributing weights for all your uh, different nodes. 
so it i think it's easier if we can envision it that way it's like your brain trying to give weightage to uh, muscles or certain neurons and being like okay ah, you okay. fire this you fire that you contract you expand like so over time the co contraction let's say it's not required per se for you to be stable because you learn uh, the, the the model is found where you learn okay this is the way to do it but initially because you don't know it you are you are suddenly being given an opposing force you start co contracting because that equates to uh, more stability and what we are trying to see is does that also relate to learning things faster is does mm-hmm. co contracting also means that you are learning it at a faster pace than normal is it one of the tactics that the brain uses in order to learn something uh, like initially co contract learn it and then you don't have to use it anymore but yeah this these are these are all hypothesis not not proven or it, it could be because initially doesn't know how much exact co contraction is needed so it does yeah. more and it doesn't even have to be like co contraction it knows right? how much right. it doesn't even have to be co contraction okay. once it learns the movement you can you can be like uh, mm-hmm. uh, let's say contract the bicep so much but not so much of the tricep or the opposite like whatever it is like whatever is required for that particular movement but initially it's not able to figure that out initially it co contracts tries to keep it stable and there is also the uh, so our brain uh, we, we believe it it works a certain way right when uh, in order to understand that we need to understand uh, how we move like what happens if i have to just uh, lift my hand up like uh, so it mm. starts with the motor cortex of the brain it sends a signal down to your spinal cord saying hey listen i want this person to move this um, the and from the spinal cord uh, we have something called the efferent neuron so the efferent neuron is the neuron that goes from any other part of the body to the central nervous system and the efferent neuron is the one that goes from the central nervous system to other parts of your body right best example for a, a efferent neuron would be a motor neuron something that carries signal from the brain to your muscles and example of efferent would be something like uh, say uh, when you take a pin and poke yourself on your skin your skin has stretch receptors it's got pain receptors like nerve endings all of that and it's going to send a pain mm-hmm. back to the brain saying hey listen this idiot is actually taking a pin and poking himself and so your brain generates pain at that point so you never have pain locally your brain makes you think that you have pain locally it's basically signals being sent to the brain back saying hey he's poking and the brain is like oh shit i sh- i need to stop him stop this guy doing this just generate some pain so th- th- that's how it works so when you want to move that's exactly how it works as well your brain it starts with the motor cortex sends a signal down to the spinal cord and from there it, there's going to be an action potential sent through the motor neuron to your muscles right so like i said the muscles are the last in that chain of movement your brain decides what you have to do so as it sends signal to your muscles a lot of things happen there there's a lot of uh, chemical reactions that happen there like an action potential is being sent you've got sodium channels opening up you've got potassium channels opening up potassium going out so there is a really uh, it's called depolarization and repolarization so your 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 cell has a certain uh, it's about minus 70 uh, millivolts so that's that's essentially what the charge is 
and because of these channels opening up there's going to be a immediate increase in positive charge and then it comes down again to the normal state in that particular moment where that action potential happens is when you open up calcium channels again and through that your muscles contract and expand so it's it's a very complicated mechanism even for something like lifting my hands up this way it's if you if you think about it the first time that i thought about this whole picture i couldn't believe that it all happened in a matter of seconds like less than seconds right because if you look at muscles the way that muscles contract is that they've got something called a cross bridge formation so you've got something called actin there is a sheet of actin here and there's something called myosin which is like a a head mm. it basically has to attach and pull this through so that's how you contract and expand and so you, all of these action potentials from the brain to all of your muscles it just happens in an instant like that right so uh, mm. wait i forgot what the question was what was the question again yeah where did we look at this uh yes <laughs> i've seen this guy there's this uh, guy who there's this very heavy metal kind of object which falls from the top through his shoe like right through on a construction worker so this guy experiences like quite a lot of pain like he says it's like the worst pains he's experienced but once they open his shoe and see that pain didn't go through his leg at all it's gone right between his like it didn't hurt him at all they say pain is just a perception it does, it doesn't have to be physical also yeah yeah pain is uh, like the, the the feeling of pain is not on your on that particular part it's always your brain making you feel pain um, and also i i i got i i was just thinking and then i know what exactly was the question before and why i went in that track <laughs> so yeah so mm-hmm. the i i was saying this because so as your brain gives that command to your spinal cord saying contract these muscles or expand these muscles it also makes a copy of it so it it so one one set of the command is being sent to your muscle the other copy is going to be sent to uh, parts of the brain where it also uh, predicts what's going to happen for that particular motor command right so for example let's say it's about moving my arm from target a to target b it sends a command to your muscle saying contract this expand this there is also a copy of it that's being sent to uh, another part of the brain we believe that is it's the cerebellum uh, so what the cerebellum does is that it predicts that hey this is what's going to happen uh, for this particular motor command that's being sent from the brain but what happens is that your other systems your visual feedback uh is different if you look at the screen there is a force field so you you don't exactly reach the target like you thought you would so at that point the brain mm-hmm. also learns from errors we learn from errors it's it's a known fact uh, as we make mistakes uh, let's say you learn something new for example in in animal for for example the reason that you get better is because as you make mistakes the error correction happens because the brain you it, it, what you predict is not exactly what it happens so slowly it it's like a learning mo- a model it keeps learning 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 so that's that's another way that we do motor learning so does uh, does another thing uh, another way to look at it is uh like how, how does uh, error come into this right because with co contraction you sort of try to reduce the error so uh, but errors mm-hmm. uh, have have been shown that making errors is is one of the ways that our nervous system learns about this 
So as you bypass that, as you reduce that with increased accuracy due to co-contraction, how is that uh, you learn? Is there some other mechanism behind it? So it, it's, it's a lot of different things connected together. Um, is there a specific study for uh, pain management in kinesiology? Yeah. Pain management uh, as such. So pain management as in with respect to injuries? Uh, yeah, injuries I think when injuries. it comes to injuries, it's uh, more of athletic training. So they are the uh, professionals, uh, they, are the, they are the healthcare professionals who deal with injuries, making sure that athletes are in good shape. So athletic training, uh, they're called athletic trainers. Almost every team here has an athletic trainer. So yeah, it, that, that's another facet of kinesiology. But for that, you have to uh, like pick to be an athletic trainer. You have to get certified. So just a kinesiology degree will, will uh, I mean, you, you'll obviously learn to be an athletic trainer, but you also need to be certified because it's, uh, it's an allied uh, healthcare professional in the US. There's a further specification you have to like narrow down. Yeah, for sure. And oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they are like perfectly geared towards uh, uh, making sure that athletes are uh, in good shape. They are not uh, susceptible to injuries, prevent injuries. And if they're injured, how do we get them back uh, to good uh, fitness levels as soon as possible? What are the best methodologies? And all of that. So. Absolutely. Yeah, we need to, we definitely need to. <laughs> so actually, we've yep. spoken for quite some time and I think we need to slowly wrap up. <laughs> I'm probably just going to go eat, man. That's it. Uh, you probably have um, better yeah. things to do than get no, on I, I, not, not on Saturdays and Sundays. I just try to grab a heavy lunch. You haven't had yeah. breakfast, you? usually cook something uh, like heavy, like it's either biryani or just trying some something else, like some, some beef, something like that. Like, Thank you guys, it's been a pleasure as well. Yes. <laughs> see you and see you.